I draw our attention this morning to Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, where Moses and Elijah, in this mount of transfiguration, appear there with the Lord in glory, and that is Christ's glory. They are there as representatives of the old order, the old covenant with him. And what did they speak of? Well, they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What remarkable words. Speaking of someone's decease, which he was about to accomplish, well, in Jerusalem, as it so happened. So the title is this of the sermon, An Assisted Death. Right. An Assisted Death. Curious. Normally, we would encourage people to live. If we find someone a little dejected, depressed, and more seriously suicidal, well, we would do, wouldn't we, a level best, I think, to encourage them. As they know, don't think such gloomy and negative thoughts. Don't be so depressed. And if we have our wits about us, we would impress upon them truth, Christ's resurrection, glory of heaven. Well, the fearfulness of hell. And we would encourage them. No, do not take your life. There was the Philippian jailer, wasn't he, when he thought that all the prisoners had escaped when the earthquake hit the prison in Philippi. And Paul and Silas had been singing hymns and praising God. And then the earthquake struck and the guard imagined that everybody had escaped. That that was it. There was one thing you did not want to happen as the guardian of a prison, which was to lose your prisoners. And he imagined his life was forfeit and he was preparing to kill himself. And Paul had shouted out, no, do yourself no harm. We're all here, which amazed him that they hadn't all kind of hot-footed it immediately. So we urge people, no, do yourself no harm. Terminally ill people, well, we deplore immensely the efforts to try and hasten their death. To try to encourage them in thinking about their death. Well, why not? We'll see if we can find some doctor or go to some country where we can speedily dispatch you and where all your suffering will end. Well, there's a notion indeed that discounts eternity and has little thought of hell. So we encourage people to live and deplore those who have an unscrupulous aim to try to hasten the death of a uh, a sick elderly parent or relative. Well, here are Moses and Elijah, those great representatives of the old covenant, the law and the prophets, if you will, all of which were testifying of the Lord Jesus Christ. And very appropriately here they are, appearing with him in glory, these great figures of the, the old covenant and the types and the shadows and every part of it speaking with him in his glory. Well, you might think they would speak about his glory. There is his great person revealed here. If you're in any doubts, if he is divine, then here your doubts are dispelled. One of the good reasons for thinking, truly, this is the Son of God, is this remarkable, transcendent glory this illumination of him, this radiance that just poured forth from him, 
his clothing, as it were, was illuminated. His face was, was radiant. Well, we might talk about that. We might think we might talk about that. Except that they weren't talking about that. They're actually talking about his death. And they weren't saying, no, 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 no. No, that, that shall happen to you. That, that, of course, was Peter's big mistake. In fact, he made that big mistake just shortly before this event. And as we could read in Matthew chapter 16, when the Lord had spoken about, he would, would go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Well, Peter said, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. That was Peter, and he's got some wrong ideas here. This this idea of building tabernacles for, for the three of them. He didn't know what he said. He didn't know what he said when he tried to deter the Lord from dying. No, and he is rebuked by the Lord. Actually, that, that's Satan's plan. That is having in mind not the things of God, but the things of men. And Moses and Elijah are not saying, no, 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 no decease. That cannot happen to you. That must not happen. See this glory that is yours. Surely not that you're going to die. No, they were far from deterring him. They were actually assisting him in his death. They were speaking of it, not in a way to stop him from doing it. So is there no other way than this? But in full agreement with him in this, for everything that they stood for, spoke about, represented, we'll come to that more fully in a moment, spoke of his decease, spoke of his death, told of this as the most vital and key thing that he would do. And so far from deterring him, far from saying this shall not happen to you, they're assisting him in that death. And he himself, and it's remarkable, isn't it, how it's expressed that he was about to accomplish, as though well, like a work of art or something like this, as though something that required all particular attention and minute detail that was to be part of this construction, if you like, of his death. That he's a willing accomplice in his own death, assisting himself and, if you will, encouraging there all of these great representatives, Moses and Elijah, agreeing with them fully this death that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So even the detail of the place was there and intact. And nobody was speaking against him. Nobody was saying that this should not happen. None were saying to him, don't be so morbid. Don't be so, oh, just talking about death all the time. Uh, stop this. Brighten it up a bit here. That's what many would say. Church is like ours, isn't it, friends? They, they say, oh, brighten this up a bit. Let's always talk about death. What's all this talk about the cross? What's all this talk about him having to suffer? And he said, well, no. We would be with Moses and Elijah. There are enough churches which would try to deter him from his death or try to deter preaching about his death. Oh, this blood we don't want to hear about. Or this, this, this broken body which we, we have represented to us and the blood here at the communion table. No, take this away from us. We want a different message to that. But that would not agree with the law of the prophets. That's where Moses and Elijah were in full agreement with him about this decease that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And we notice that uh, Peter here, though off message and again off the pace, 
in understanding what the implications of all of this were uh, and wanting to hold on to the glory. But no, that, that glory was to again be toned down. Moses and Elijah would, would again remarkably brought back here for this occasion from dead, but that they, they would return to their proper dwelling place there in the Lord's presence. And that the Lord Jesus would again appear in his ordinary, everyday appearance, in his very palpable humanity, very ordinary humanity, very non-transcendent, transfigured humanity. But that's how it was meant to be. And that was absolutely proper. And Peter remarked about these things. While then he didn't talk about these things and was required not to talk about these things. He does later talk about them in Second Peter in chapter 1. In verses 16 to 18, because he says here, as if people in those days, and they still are, trying to make this all out to be just a gotten up story, that uh, the church is just playing people here, that really it's all just gotten up. And he is emphatic, no, it isn't. And he explains, for we do not follow cunningly devised fables. We may known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father Honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And it's interesting that Peter there particularly, uh, not so much there and doesn't dwell at length on the glory and what it looked like. That's here in the gospel account. But it is the word that came from heaven about this is my beloved son hear him and so this now peter is on message and he's heard and he's heard that it required a decease why he had seen that decease while he would be well aware that scripture contains his ill-chosen words and efforts to deter the lord from dying not anymore he now fully fully understands so moving on first heading christ's upcoming death was no secret Right. This was no secret. His upcoming death, this was no surprise. This was no kind of afterthought. Some would preach there and Christian folk at that, that somehow or other, it was actually the glory that was meant to come and stay. And that people were meant to say, ah, the king, this is the moment, this is the time. And that they didn't realize that that was on offer and kind of refused it. And so he moved forward to die. Some would almost look on that as a bit of a plan B. Never was a plan B. It was always the only plan. And the plan was there right from the beginning of time. In those words, we know very well, I'm sure, if we have any familiarity with the Bible, but Genesis and chapter 3. And those spoken to the serpent, the devil, warning him of his future destruction, but that the destruction would be at the hands of a great coming king. So we read, God said to the serpent, because you have done this, introduce that temptation, cause mankind in that way to fall. You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A fatal blow for the devil but also a blow to come upon the promised one, the one who stood against all 
of the devil's schemes, who had come to destroy them, in fact, released from the bondage of fear of death all those who were kept in prison by it. But his heel would be bruised. There was damage that he would be incurring. There would be hurt and there would be harm. Not a wall of protection around him, not some surrounding kind of cocooning, as if the glory would just be always there, none would dare touch him. Oh no, they'd touch him all right. They would be able to do some dreadful things to him. And it was all in the plan of God. And all of this was familiar territory to to Moses and Elijah. They belonged in that company of prophets that we would read about in First Peter chapter 1 and verses 10 to 12, even though all the details may not have been there available to their grasp, but they saw something. So we learn of them that of this salvation, the prophets who've inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us, they're ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. And friends, we're looking into those things this morning. While for the prophets, something, the detail, some of the happenings and the events were still veiled in a mystery. When this would happen, in their lifetime or another lifetime further down the track, And they realized, no, it's for another generation. But that they were seeing the sufferings. They were seeing his decease. Moses and Elijah in their place and their time and all who followed them in all the line of the prophets. They saw this and they spoke of this. Why the sacrificial system? Did it not again and again and again speak of death? How anybody can read the Old Testament and somehow think that Christ dying upon the cross is not the central thing. When there's all of that death, all of the blood that was being shed throughout the Old Testament. We read Exodus chapter 12. We read of Passover. And of course, when our Lord goes to Jerusalem, particularly then to die, that's Passover. That, that's him. He is the Lamb of God. He's taking away the sin of the world. He is the one under whose blood, covered by that, then God's vengeance and his destruction against sinners and their sin is removed, is passed over. There it is, Exodus chapter 12, but not only there, in the entirety of the Levitical system. The sacrifices to be made daily, weekly, monthly, annually, in all of their variety, but always with death. And the individual worshipper bringing a burnt offering or or their grain offering or their trespass offering or their sin offering, their peace offering, whatever it might be that had moved their hearts or required of them as worshippers to come to the priests and there at the bronze altar to see an officiation of the priests there in the offering up always of blood, death everywhere. And so the spiritually alerts were conscious of the fact that there is no fellowship with God. Unless there is the shedding of blood. Unless sin is atoned for. Unless something is done that is given heavenward from God toward the sinner of reconciliation, of offering there of peace with the sinner, never without the shedding of blood. Time and time again, day in, day out, week in, week out, 
Year in, year out, death, same offerings, same shedding of blood. Christ's forthcoming death was not a secret in the Old Testament, not a secret in the Old Covenant, Levitical system, the observance of Passover, the Day of Atonement. No, rather, there was death all the time. And we know too, don't we, in the remarkable passage, and I'm going to read a few verses of it, Isaiah chapter 53. Well, here are the prophets inquiring about the manner of this death. And one day there was to be a youth Ethiopian eunuch who is himself now wrestling with, who is this speaking of? The prophet or, or somebody else? We know Philip, when he approached the chariot, preached Jesus to that man. Because this is who it is. I'm just reading Isaiah 53, just from verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Death, it is there written for him, the fulfillment of scripture, and it required it. Moses and Elijah were absolutely right to be encouraging him in that death, to be offering, as it were, that assistance in his death. Because the entirety of scripture, there most notably in Isaiah chapter 53, cut off from the land of the living, stricken there for our transgressions, a grave that he'd have with the wicked and with the rich at his death, his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It was no secret to his parents. They knew. Joseph and Mary knew because they were told very clearly and they came to the dedication at the temple. And remarkable, Simeon, this old man, who had been told that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he's moved by the Spirit, isn't he, to enter. Just at the moment when parents are coming with the child. And so he speaks of this child and speaks very poignantly there to, to Mary. Yes, he says, Simeon blessed them, the parents, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. It sounds as if there's a sword that's going to go through the child's heart, that there is pain and suffering ahead for him, on which his mother, notice not Joseph spoken to here, but his mother would be observing, would be there at the foot of the cross, there watching the unfolding drama of the death of her son. John the Baptist, we've already quoted him, he knew. He knew this was upcoming. He knew that there was the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And there was no secret from the Lord Jesus. Even there as that 12-year-old in Jerusalem, his parents searching for him anxiously those three days and him saying to them, why, why, why were you so anxious? Didn't you know that I would be here, that I am about my father's business? And that his father's business 
Moses and Elijah were speaking of those things to him, encouraging him, heartening him in that, that all the law and the prophets did indeed agree with this, that he should die upon the cross. And our Lord spoke of it, spoke of it to his disciples, spoke of it time and time again, and would not be deterred from it, that this is what had to happen. There could be no prophet dying outside of Jerusalem. It had to be, for so it was fitting to fulfill all scripture. So Christ's upcoming death was no secret. Second heading, he accomplished his death to the letter, to the letter. Every part of it didn't balk at any of it. The ignominy of a false trial, the betrayal by a close associate, the details of it, which are all there in scripture. He did not balk at any of it and say, well, no, I'm not going to accomplish that part. That is requiring a little too much of me. My glory, my proper identity as the son of God, the divine person, indeed, as well as a human person, one person, two natures, remarkable, incredible, miracle. And here it is, living, breathing before us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would pull rank and say, no, I will not have that happen to me. Not that part there. Enough to die upon the cross, let alone to have all the miserable behavior of people. All of the lies, all of the betrayal, all of the fleeing of my disciples from my side, their desertion and the cruelty of that. No, he would have it all. And he would have the lawless hands that were going to crucify him. Well, in a sense, there, talking about his death to come, assisting him in that. Well, we could even place Caiaphas and Annas there the high priests and the father-in-law who was also occupying that post and who were of all the human representatives, the most lawless of all. Little did they know when Caiaphas spoke that it's better for one to die than for the nation, than for all to die. And in that, John's gospel tells us in John chapter 11, that he prophesied. He was actually speaking prophetically. The man did him no good to speak in those terms. That, as it were, they were their lawless hands, assisting our Lord in his death, putting it in those human terms. But beyond it, and greater than that, our Lord Jesus himself was accomplishing to the letter his death, fulfilling all scripture, not refusing certain parts of it, some of the cruel aspects of it. There on the cross, and there are the soldiers casting lots for his clothing. There, there they were, speaking of him in that way, giving him gall for water. All of it he would bear and declare that it had to be to fulfill all scripture. And that all of it, his whole being was engaged in this, that his mind was set upon it. Later on, he is to speak there in Luke chapter 13, when perhaps offered a way of escape when that temptation was put before him, refuses it. Luke 13, and just reading from verse 31, on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Well, we might think, I'll hear that, and I'm on my way. But that was not to accomplish his death. And so instead he says to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, 
For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem again, accomplishing his decease at Jerusalem. The details are vital and are all there. And he will fulfill them to the letter and urged himself forward in that. Whenever given an escape route, there's Peter and his trusty disciples. They could come to his aid, refuses that. There there are the Pharisees even offering some degree of help here. Seemingly these ones at least are not wanting to see him die at the hands of Herod for whatever reason they, they, they come with this counsel to him. Get out and depart from here. But he refuses that. He refuses the help of angels. He could have called upon 12 legions of angels. More than that. Why, that's just a sample of the heavenly help he could have had, but refused it. So received the help of the angels that came to help him in the Garden of Gethsemane, having prayed and prayed through and having wrestled and, and embraced indeed that cup that he must drink. And then... Not the angels to come to kind of have his glory. Let's, let's have this. Let's be on the Mount of Transfiguration. But to strengthen him in this decease that he must accomplish at Jerusalem. He refused to have an assisted life. He refused all of heaven's help towards an assisted life. Or his friends or even the Pharisees. All of it had to be refused because he had to accomplish his death to the letter. So my final heading, it was accomplished for our sakes. All of that detail, all of that that was endured, all of that pain, that grief, that sorrow, every last part of it, every last dreg of that bitter cup that was his to drink and that he would accomplish was done, friends, for our sakes, uh, our sakes as much as any other generation's sakes. Uh, us as believers, if believers we are this morning, as much as for any other believers of any generation that has been or any generation that will come. And our names were engraven upon his hands. A great high priest carried the names, didn't he, there of the, of the tribes before the presence of God. And so our own great high priest carries our names as he offers up not the blood of bulls and goats anymore, but his own blood. He does it for sinners. does it for people, flesh and blood, people, wretched people, people who are filled with enmity by nature toward him, incomprehension, and an incomprehension worse than Peter's, not understanding not realizing the gravity of our own problem that required the fulfillment to the letter of all of this suffering. And then on the cross, the weight of our sin to come upon him, weigh him down upon his pure spotless soul. We just don't see fully what's needed until the Lord shows us. That we're actually willing accomplices in our own deaths. We, we are actually being assisted in death while fooling ourselves that we're being assisted in life. No, we're the ones who've got it so monstrously wrong and are aiding and abetting, if we're not Christians today, our own decease, wherever we're going to accomplish it, wherever the moment will come when finally we draw our last breath. What a dreadful state to be in, to be 
unforgiven at that moment. To have not seen the things we've been speaking about here and more things than I have time to tell you about. Realizing his death had to happen because sin cannot be atoned for other than through the death of one. If this blood is the blood of the Son of God, then that is precious to redeem. That's precious to say. Have you seen that? Have your eyes beheld his glory? Have you heard the voice from heaven bidding you to see my beloved son, hear him? And he shouts to you, cries to you from the cross. If you want to hear him, look at the cross. If you want to understand him, look at the cross. Look at his death. Look at this communion table. What's it telling you about? It's telling you about his death. Proclaiming it till he comes. He returns one day because he was risen from the dead. Glory and honor is his. But not until all the rest of it was his to taste. You will lie to, friend. You're actually accomplishing your own death, but which will actually be a final death. The second death, as the Bible calls it. That is a death to avoid at all costs. Because it means hell. It means condemnation. It means the wrath of God. You're enduring that and abiding under that for eternity. And having to think about the pangs of regret. The moments when that Christ was there. You you heard about him. And then turned away from him. Thought, I don't need that. I don't need him. I don't need him to die for me. I'm sufficient. I, I have what I need. I have a life to live. And I'm going to live that. You're just assisting your own death. And whoever you're listening to, whichever voice, if it's not God's voice saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Some other voice is telling you, listen to me. But I can tell you with reliable authority of the word of God, you're listening to the devil, friend. He wants your destruction. He wants you to accomplish your decease. He'll aid and abet you in it. But it won't be a good death. And it won't be a happy death. And it won't be a death where the afterlife is going to be joy and heaven. No, it's going to be hell. Condemnation, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. He wants you to have that. That's what he's going to have. He wants to drag you with him into that misery and wretchedness. You're assisting yourself in your death. You're hearing the wrong voice speaking to you. And you're believing fondly there that you don't need this Christ. That you don't need his death for you. You don't need blood to be shed. It should have been your blood. It should have been mine blood. We, we, we should be the ones who, whose lives are forfeit. But we're talking about mercy here, friends. In talking about this decease, in talking about this death, all this dying, all this blood, all of it is mercy, actually. Every last part of it is God speaking to us of pardon, forgiveness, of mercy, of a willingness there in heaven on the part of God against whom we have offended so frequently, so grievously, so carelessly, unthinkingly. And he says, I will forgive it all. I will pardon sinners their sins completely and absolutely and leave them then with such peace and such calmness because I'm going to pour out my spirit upon them that in that moment of turning to me, I will endow them with helps and graces. That is what I do for sinners. And if you doubt it, you look at my son and you look at what he has done there. And This can be yours today to receive this. Because actually then, having gone through his own assisted death, accomplished his decease, he will then truly assist you in life. He will give you the helper, the Holy Spirit, 
you will have every assistance, every encouragement. You'll be able to pray to him and he will afford you heaven's help and resources. So all the issues of life, which as Christians we have, and when you young Christians, well, we bring an awful lot with us into the kingdom. And he'll unravel it and unpack it and he will sanctify and get hold of us in the deep persons that we are and renew and change and and stir us up to repentance. All of that, he says, I will do for you. There's my son. Hear him. See what he's done and believe it. Friend, believe it. Believe this is the record given. It's what Moses and Elijah were talking about. That's all that the Bible is talking about. It's talking about him. It's talking about Christ and him crucified. Repent. Turn away from dying. Choosing death. Choose life, rather. Folly. Absolute folly. And that is what sin brings us to in the end. For our sakes. This is for the sake of fallen human being. Not some strange, inexplicable martyrdom. Not some odd self-flagellation. Not some strange example for us that we're somehow to copy. But no, it's for you to believe. And see that shed blood. To trust in him for everlasting life. And to learn really then what true life is. Because you'll only learn it if you go through the pathway there. That his death opens up to you, to me, that our sins can be forgiven. Friend, choose life.